Joko listeners and welcome back to episode number 12 which is dedicated to mental health awareness in the Senegalese society. With us today we have two guests Bolo Jalo Young a nurse practitioner who deals with mental health in her profession and Maimuna Leidrop a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. Ladies welcome to the show. Hi this is Bolo and thank you for having me I'm happy to be here today. Hello this is Major. Thank you for ha- having me. So nice to be here too. Thank you, ladies. We're so happy that you know you're granting us this opportunity to speak to both of you. Um, mental health is a topic that's super important to both Adam and myself, and we're excited about today's episode. But as usual, we'll start with our icebreaker. So we'll have Adam lead us to that. Hello, everyone. Um, as usual, this is our icebreaker. What does mental health mean to you? So we have a lot of opinions now today on the podcast. We have four different answers that we're going to have, and I'm interested to see um, what they will be. So I'll begin. Uh, For me, mental health means a lot of things, but the thing I'd like to focus on is proactive mental health. So doing things that help me um, maintain a positive mental health balance. And for me, that's sleeping when I'm tired, eating foods that um, are healthy, but also taste good, and taking walks. So what does mental health mean to um, you all? This is Bolo. To me, mental health uh, means a balance between the young and the young um, to be able to balance your psychological, social, and uh, financial life. And also, to, to, be, uh, to have a good mental health means to be able to be at home, enjoy uh, quiet time for myself and make some food. Hello, this is Major. For me, uh, mental health means like uh, taking care of your brain and also it's a combination of both physical and mental well-being, you know. So one of my distresses is cooking. So, you know, just being in the kitchen, you know, means a lot. To me, it helped me de-stress. And also, like like Bolo said, it's a combination of, you know, exercising, eating healthy, you know, uh, laughing, sleeping, and all that combination, you know. Yeah, and I'll go ahead and finish off the icebreaker by talking about what it means for me. Um, It wasn't until recently that I learned what it meant to set boundaries. Because I feel like in our lives, we're so um, busy and we're being pulled in different directions. So for me, mental health means setting boundaries. And I think, you know, a lot of the answers you guys gave have flavors of setting boundaries. Really what makes us happy and what keeps us at peace and to have that balance that Bolo mentioned. 
Um, so what I like to do is sometimes just shut out from the world, with whether it means not being on my phone as much or just binging on a Netflix show that makes me feel good. Um, but taking that time really to myself to be disconnected from others has been huge for uh, my mental health um, in the recent years. But yeah, thank you all for sharing your answers around that. I'm sure our listeners all have different ways of de-stressing and finding that balance in their life. So we're inviting everyone to share how they're feeling and how um, they approach the topic of mental health. So it's a really important topic that's not very talked about in Senegalese society today. So we'll get right into our episode and first talk about, um, you know, what are some of the stigmas or taboo around the topic of mental health? and how people may skirt around it. And then we'll also debunk some myths. So Bolo and May will take us through some of the myths that we have around mental health. And then we'll um, talk about the topic of generational trauma as well. So with the help of our two professionals here today, we'll have you know a better understanding of the topic of mental health and be one step closer to destigmatizing it in Senegalese society. So we're going to begin by going through multiple stigmas that Ida and I have encountered um, personally in terms of this topic of mental health. And then we'll talk about what these stigmas mean and how we've encountered it in our professional and personal lives. So the first stigma being um, therapy or any proactive mental health action being seen as something for white people and i'll give an anecdote um just growing up whenever we would watch something on tv usually the lifetime movies when one protagonist in the lifetime movies like there's a scene where she's seeing a therapist and then i would just hear my parents make comments like oh yeah you know this is like a white person activity if they just like um prayed about it or talked to people it'll go away they're just wasting their money and it's not a sentiment that just my parents have. Lots of people in the Senegalese communities and even Black people in general um, view therapy as something that is not for our community, which makes sense. But I'll let um, the rest of you all talk about the topic. But that's the first stigma. So what are your opinions on this first stigma? Therapy not being um, made for Black people, for Senegalese people. I, I, I can just... Uh, talk about therapy in general I know even though like in our community you know we often say that therapy is not for us you know you can it's important to to say that like we have different type of therapy prayers praying is one you know so it may or may not but like sometime when we have some issues going on you know we we, we start praying and then is one of the therapy. Uh, here in general, you know, we have different type of therapy depending on what's going on in your life. It can be cognitive behavior therapy for somebody who has some distorted feeling. It can be uh, dialectical behavior therapy. So in our community, I think, you know, there's a, the stigma there is that like, we don't like to, to disclose to people that we don't know. But like, you know, if we go back by our culture, I think, you know, we have some sort of therapy in our culture. You know, when you have issues with your husband, you go talk to the imam, for example, or you go talk to your elders. All those are type of therapies that we have. 
So this is Bolo. I'll uh, take it from where Munas my uh, left it off. Um, there's a uh, there's some cultural differences between um, how we view therapy or what we call therapy uh, between Senegalese culture and Western culture. Uh, those two cultures are different. Senegalese culture, we are more like a communist culture. We are more like a social culture. When you compare it to the European or American culture, it's more individualistic. So people are on their own, no matter what. You don't have anybody to talk to. You don't have anybody to cry on. While in the Senegalese community, you have your friends, you have your family, you have your sisters, your mom and your dad. And like Muna said, if you have a problem issue with your husband, you have the parents who come and take care of it and, and talk to your husband and, and just uh, tell them you cannot do this, you cannot do that. Like the third party, when here they don't have it, their third party is a therapist. And also it's true that same um, that same cultural um, uh, that same culture is true to African Americans. They are also living as a community, so they support each other. That's why they don't like to to go to therapy, and it's viewed as a failure. It's viewed as uh, showing your dirty laundry outside of the family. So um, those are the two different differences that I see between the two cultures. But also there are. Um, it depends on what the problem is, what the mental health problem is, mental health problem is. If it is a true mental health disease, then that requires just more than talking to a family. But if it's just you you lost a boyfriend, you lost a husband, uh, I mean, you were divorced or something like that, sometimes the family in Senegal can help you go through this. Those are really good points, ladies. Um, we sometimes have a singular view which is a good segue into the next question, actually. So I'm actually checking myself. You, you brought up some really good points around the different kinds of therapeutic activities. Um, and I think the, the takeaway that I at least have from it is that getting therapy or, or seeing a therapist or getting help doesn't necessarily have to come from a professional all the time, which is something that's really important to keep in mind. So thank you for sharing your answers. Um, the next stigma that I have is there is a single way of dealing with grief and pain. So the context around this is generally around death. Sometimes when we lose a family member or we know someone who's lost someone close to them, we think automatically the way to grieve is by crying and really um, omitting that pain so others can see it. But we wanted to you know, get your guys' thoughts on the stigma around there's only one way of dealing with pain or grief. So uh, this is Bolo. Um, grieving is, uh, is 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 has different stages. Um, we have uh, the stage when somebody just lost their loved ones, where they go through a shock or disbelief, and then they go through denial. No, this is not happening. They didn't die. Something is this is not true. And then they go through bargaining, uh, saying. Um, what if, what if, what if, I wish I did this, I wish I did that. And then guilt, uh, that's also guilt and ang anger. They get. They can be angry at themselves saying, oh, I wish I didn't go to work. I would have just been here and I'm angry at God. I'm angry at anybody, the doctors that took care of my husband. So they're angry and then depression where 
they don't want to talk to anybody. They want to stay at home. They don't. They 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 want to stay in bed. And then from there, if the grieving goes well successfully, we have all of these steps. You have to go through all of these steps to have a very healthy, successful grief. And then you go to you go you go through the stage called acceptance and hope. So then now you realize this is this is a fact. It happened, and you accept it, and you you're okay with it. And then you learn how to deal with it and to move on. And that will take up to six months. And in any grieving that's more than a year, and somebody who's stuck in depression, they may be that's a pathological grieving where they they get stuck in one stage, maybe anger. They they always angry at everybody, or it's a depression. They don't ever want to get out of the bed, and they don't want to change their clothes. Then that's a problem. They probably need uh, professional help. Um, going to a therapist or psychiatrist or psychologist. But if they're going through these stages uh, accordingly, then getting help, being surrounded by family and friends and the support, that can help them go through that. Okay, this is May. Good point, Bolo. So I just want to mention that everybody goes, you know, grieve differently. And like those steps that Bolo has just mentioned, you know, some people people may not follow it like, you know, you, you may, like, for example, accept it because let's say you have a family member who had cancer, you know, it's like you are expecting it and they give them like maybe six months to live. So, you know, so everybody's goes like from the denial to the acceptance is different. So it all depends on, you know, how people are grieving. So, you know, the different way of grieving doesn't mean that one going to grieve you know, better than the other one. You know, as far as in, in our community, I think most of the time, you know, I can use myself as an example. I remember when losing my, or when I lost my sister, like usually, most of the time people say, you don't need to cry. You know, the tears gonna be something like hot water that you're pouring over the dead body. You know, just pray, pray for them. You know, so something, I think sometimes our culture can be a little bit like, you know, uh, harsh you know because we are kind of mixing culture and 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 religion because if they tell you well when you lose somebody you have to cry you you cannot cry but you know you need to pray so sometimes there's a problem here for example i mean for somebody to grieve effectively they have to have the support like bolo say the support system is important you know and, you know, sometimes maybe like here, our, our people, our counterpart may not have that support that they need because back home you have like every day somebody going to come. They will spend the day with you and all that here, like the minute that you lose your loved one and, you know, it's gone. Like people come to see you for one or once or twice. And then after you are home by yourself, staring the walls and all that. So it may be, a, a, you know, shocking, you know, for for you know, our the Senegalese, I mean, immigrant that are here. So the way that we are grieving and the lack of support. I mean, friends are trying to do what they can do, but also the reality of being in the United States can be, you know, harsh also because people have to work, they work different shifts. So the support that your friends and family are supposed to give you sometimes is not there because they have to also try to survive and then take care of their family too interesting points that you you both raise and i think my perspective is a slightly different because i was born and raised in the us so i didn't have access to that 
communal culture. I sort of did because I did have my immediate family. I grew up with um, two siblings and two parents. But having, you know, your cousins, your grandmother, everyone around you, I didn't have that. Um, so I am a little bit more individualist than usual in the Senegalese community. So for me, it's like I would feel more comfortable actually talking to a therapist than I would to an extended family member. And I guess because I feel like it's because of bias. The family member has bias. They have the cultural traditions that they see. So if I'm encountering a problem, let's say, that goes against whatever cultural values we have in our community, then I will feel judgment. I will feel resentment. I'll feel all of these negative emotions because my problem doesn't fit neatly into the culture. Whereas if I have another problem that does fit neatly into the culture, then maybe I can, you know, talk to my mom or my grandma. So I think that um, the communal uh, therapy can work in some instances. And in other instances, you can feel alone, even when you have those support systems around you. Um, so I think that's one point I wanted to highlight. The next stigma I wanted to talk about was related to children. Um, so you talked, you both talked about how there is grieving is a process; it's not a linear step, and that grieving looks different for different people. So children grieve. Children feel emotions. Children have um, suffer from mental health or need proactive mental health services as well. However, growing up as a Senegalese child um, in a Senegalese household, because of culture and the dynamic between, you know, a parent and a child, sometimes my feelings were diminished and there were and I was told that, you know, you'll grow out of it. Like it's normal for a child to feel this way. What are some what's advice you sh you're giving? Um, and some of you, uh, I think both are both of you parents. If, if so, speak to um, how maybe you've seen this um, manifest in your households. So how should Senegalese parents enforce a safe mental health environment for their children? What advice would you give to those parents? Um, what are some things you've practiced in your own households? I think mental illness is overlooked in our community. I mean, you know, so, you know, sometimes when we see, we may see something, but, you know, we, we will just kind of close our eyes and say, well, that's, that's normal part of growing. But if you look at, you know, the, you know, the culture, I mean, the culture that we are in here, you know, it's like the parents are very, you know, uh, watchful or like just monitor their children behavior to a point that, you know, if there is a single, you know, behavior that deviate out of the norm, they, they seek help. And, you know, that notion of seeking help does not exist in, in, in our community. You know, for example, you know, one of um, a child may talk about, you know, cutting themselves or they may talk about suicide. You know, you know, we're just going to put it or, you know, for example, Halibida Farrell or like, you know, like the parents did not raise their children right or something like that. We tend to ignore you know, the need of our children. I mean, I mean I, I'm speaking by myself. I mean, I can tell, I can attest to that. You know, even though I, am, I work in the mental field, sometimes I kind of like, you know, ignore some cues that I see, you know, in my children because no matter how, you know, long you live in the United States, you know, our culture is, is, is still ingrained in us. So it's just hard to just change overnight. But, you know, I... 
I'm saying, I mean, I'm, and I'm still learning from it. You know, I think it's important that, you know, we, we listen to our children and then stop putting everything in the, you know, uh, like saying that it's normal growing, you know, so we have to listen to our children, look at the kids, see what they need, because they do have mental health need. You know, they may be bullied in school, they may have some attention deficit disorder and easily distracted, you know, they are not able to follow along with their peers, you know, all of that we have to, to look into that, talk to our children so that we can provide them the help that they need. Yeah, so, um, that's that's a very good very good point. In Senegal, when a child is jumping around and uh, talking loud or doing things, they say uh, they're impolite and they get spanked and um, timeouts and whatnot. Also, when a child doesn't do well in school, they call them nullar, uh, you, you know, which means. Uh, somebody who doesn't know how to learn. I, I don't even know this, this term is negative term. It's kind of like, you know, offensive term. So they don't think of dyslexia. They don't think of ADHD. So all what they think of is judging the child or judging the parents saying they didn't raise their kids right. When here, when you see that uh, right at the beginning, you go and get your child um, evaluated and they get the help they need. If it's ADHD, they on medication and the Munas can talk to that and they, they, they focus now and they do well in school. But here in, in African immigrants or Senegalese, you see that they don't want their kids to go see a psychiatrist to, to, be, to be labeled with ADHD because that's a stigma. I don't want my child to be labeled uh, that. Therefore, I'm not gonna take my child. So they would rather deal with the problems that the child has instead of helping the child. And um, as far as grieving, kids do grieve. I, like I said, I, I, I have a bachelor's degree in psychology before doing bachelor's in nursing and I did my minor on child psychology. So it's my, I love observing children. I love observing their psychology and see how they think and what's going on. And that I do that with my kids here at home. Um, we just lost my mother-in-law who's very attached. My kids were very attached to her. I have a seven-year-old uh, girl and a 10-year-old boy who's non, my 10-year-old is non-verbal, he has Down syndrome. My daughter, they're grieving really badly. They're always crying and asking to see their grandma. So I have to sit down and listen, let's draw. Let's make, let's write a letter. Let's, 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 uh, let's write stories. I went up and, and made a blanket that has their grandma's picture. My son doesn't talk much, but he every night I come back home, like four months after their grandma passed, he's asking me, let's go to the hospital and see my grandma. But when he does that, I sit down with him and I say, I really understand. And I'm so sorry that grandma is not here. And what can we do to help? That is not part of the Senegalese culture. Most of the time they don't do that. They just brush it off but you have to pay attention. You have to help that child just like you're talking to an adult. Thank you. Thank you both for, for sharing that. I think this is going to be very insightful to our listeners. The next topic we have is equally as heavy. We promised that we're going to move to more happier topics, but this topic is generational trauma. So generational trauma is one of those, it's like a social media term. Now everyone's using it. Some people are misusing it. Um, but my understanding of it is trauma that gets passed down from generation to generation. 
Sometimes the trauma gets compounded, it, like more generations add on to it. Sometimes it doesn't, but I think the former is more um, popular than the latter. Um, so the way I've seen it explained is in terms of Af- the African-American community here in the U.S., how, you know, generations and generations of segregation, of structural racism in the United States has caused trauma to be even found in the DNA of um, African-Americans in this country. Like there is a, not only a mental aspect, but a physical aspect and um, effect of this. So generational trauma will look different for the Senegalese community since uh, most of us are recent immigrants. I'm first generation, my parents came in the 90s. So generational trauma looks different for us. So what are, what do you think? How do you think it looks for us? And how do you, how have you seen it manifest itself in our community? So uh, this is Bolo. Um, <clears throat> yes, and, and that's that's a great point. And like I said, I, I was just invited to a, uh, to a uh, show. It's, it's, a, it's called Inside News, uh, owned by African-Americans. And they were talking about how the COVID-19 is affecting African-Americans. And they asked me that specific question. Um, as somebody who's from Senegal, how do I, how do, how do African people like? We were talking about how African Americans are afraid of healthcare professionals, afraid to go to the hospital, and that's part of generational um, trauma. If you remember Tuskegee um, uh, uh, experience, experiment and all, all, and you know everything that they went through, uh, slavery and everything. So they were asking me how do you think the different uh, experiences when somebody goes to the hospital as an African or as an African-American? And what I said was that the experience is different. It's different because the African-American, the generational generational trauma that they have, we don't have that experience. Therefore, we cannot feel the way they feel in terms of that. But when we are outside walking, we all are the same. We look the same. We are all Black people. So when they see an, a black man, he may, he may be African, he may be African-American. And all this police trauma that we, we have been experiencing, when, when somebody is targeting an African-American, they can see a Senegalese man, he looks like an African-American. Therefore, the Senegalese man is, is experiencing that generational trauma that was meant for African-Americans. So on the inside, we may not feel the same in certain degree, at a certain degree, but on the outside we do. But then also with the fear of now saying, I don't want to be uh, profiled, I don't want to be uh, gunned, gunned down. We, we have that same feeling. And I feel like we share that generational experience, experience even though it didn't happen directly to us. Uh, this is May. Uh, in, as far as the generational trauma, you know, I can, you know, illustrated with you know slavery you know so i know like bolo said you know we did not go through the same thing even though we are all african and you know so with our forefathers or our ancestors did not go through the slave trade and or maybe we did not go through like some genocide you know where like our a whole tribe were exterminated or stuff but you know the fact that it's here i mean when something gonna happen, it's hard to say unless we, we, we 
speak out, you know, it's hard to say who is the African American or who is just the one coming from Africa, you know. So this generational trauma has, you know, trauma trauma on itself is like the main cause of mental illness. If you notice most of the time, all these, you know, people with mental illness, if you trace it back, it's coming from a trauma that they, they have in their early childhood, like, you know, sexual abuse, physical abuse, or emotional abuse. These, you know, African-American with the generation, uh, generational trauma, you know, like their ancestors were removed from their villages, they were malnourished, they were beaten to death, they were separated from their family, and they were humiliated. So, you know, all that, you know, it's like they have like sequelae or like they have scar and they are still carrying it to this day, you know. So that's why, I mean, and it's still following us, you know. So you see a lot of African-American, you know, male, for example, you know, they, I mean, they don't seek help because every time they, they go to see a provider and just mention something, I am thinking about, you know, having thought, to harm myself, you know, maybe uh, they're gonna call the I mean, police and get them involuntary commit. You know, because of that, you know, it still has, you know, some, some sequelae because of the generational trauma. Yeah, so still around the topic of, of generational trauma and how it can manifest itself, we've talked about um, how in the African-American community, some of the impacts of, of slavery and how um, our ancestors were treated have um, kind of seeped into how today what we see ourselves or how we see the topic of asking for help. Specifically in the Senegalese community, what are some things that you think are really stopping us from having these conversations? As I've listened to all of us talk, I mean, I know, Adam, you mentioned, um, you know, how uh, comfortable you feel talking with your feelings to people you know versus strangers. We've talked about different therapeutic ways, but when we really get down to the root of it around generational trauma, how do we ensure that we're with that open door for others who need help? But if we ourselves need help, that we're able to seek it out in a healthy way. I want to share an anecdote about that because something really powerful happened to me recently. So during um, COVID-19, we're all inside. So before this, I used to, when I used to work, I would be so exhausted in the weekend because I had to do long commutes. So I never really had time to talk with, with my parents on the phone. Now we have all the time in the world. So I have time to really sit down and, and talk to my parents. So last weekend, what I did is I asked my mom to, just, to tell me her life story because we forget that our parents lived lives before they had us. Before they had me, she lived a whole entire life. And we get bits of it, like through pictures, through when people come over and talk about it, but we don't know. And that life motivates how they raise us and motivates how they, their perspective on life and motivates the decisions they make for us as a family. So when she re recounted that whole history of her life, I was so overwhelmed and so happy that she did that because I was like, oh, now I understand why, you know, you would yell at us about these things. Now I understand why, you know, you... Um, love us in the way that you love us and why you show love in the way that you do. Thank you for sharing that story. So that's one way of overcoming generational trauma. Um, allow, give, give your parents the space to tell, tell their narratives. And me being raised here, I have 
I can take that narrative and do something with it in a way that my mom can't do um, with it, her own story. Sometimes telling your story can um, empower someone else to take it in a more positive direction. Not that, My mom's story is positive and negative, but in terms of the self-awareness aspect of it, understanding why she acts a certain way, I can bring that perspective in. Maybe she can't. So it definitely um, was a useful um, situation for me, and it definitely helped move us forward. So I think that's something I would like to share to our listeners. Like, understand your parents, understand their stories, share your own stories with your parents, or whatever you feel comfortable sharing with your parents. You don't have to share everything, but that's step one, I think. Uh- I think in general, you know, it's important that we, we listen to others and look for look out for cues, you know, because sometimes people may not express, you know, their need, but, you know, you can just, you know, reach out to them. You know, it's always good to reach out to people and ask if they need something. We have to be, to show like a lot of comp- compassion, you know. So it's important also to educate ourselves, try to know the other one better, you know. So bringing awareness is one 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 way you know so and also you know talking openly also can help with that you know and you know it's also important that we we tell our people that you know uh you cannot just take care of your physical health without you know taking into account the mental health it's like a symbiosis they go hand in hand so physical and mental health go together for you to to have an overall well-being you know so if somebody's having problem you know talk to your primary care doctor get referral to a doc- i mean to i mean talk to the pcp so that like somebody like bolo can refer you to to a therapist or you know a psychiatric you know a provider uh you know, and like you said, you know, empowerment is is important. You know, it's important to to choose empowerment over like shaming. So um, uh, this is Bolo, and um, for to me, what we should be doing is that um, we need to increase representation in the healthcare system because um, the, this gener- generational trauma has affected uh, many people, uh, you know, health-wise. A lot of, lot of African-Americans don't want to go see a doctor and, um, and African, some Africans too, because they, they are afraid to be judged. Like Muna said, some are afraid to be committed uh, against their will. And some are afraid of the people that they are, um, in front of them, even though those people are genuinely trying to help them. And like when I was uh, invited by African-American news um, uh, paper, that's what I said, as a provider, what I do is I build uh, trust between me and and this person that has this generational trauma. I sit down and make them at ease and let them know that I'm here for you. I'm here to work with you and to help you. Building that trust. And then you, you, a couple of you mentioned listening to somebody's story. If you listen to somebody's story, that brings connection, that brings sympathy and make you understand that person in different level. And also not judging. Our community likes to judge. And if some, if you fear that somebody is gonna judge you, you're not gonna be open up to them. If somebody comes to you trying to talk to you, let them in, listen to them and make them feel comfortable that you're not gonna judge them, help them find a solution. Um, 
and, and like I said, let's encourage our young youngsters to go to healthcare so that we can have more representation, we can have more people helping to remove those stigmas and to, to, to help in need. Uh, I have one point to add. I just want to, uh, you know, give you this story. I remember when I worked as an oncology nurse, I noticed that like the African-American patient or even the African patient, when they come, even though like, you know, somebody with cancer, like most of the time they are in a lot of pain, but when they come, even though you can see in their like facial, you know, uh, features that like, you know, this person is in pain, they, they never ask for pain medication because like history has, has shown that over the years, an African-American or an African that, you know, goes to, to the hospital, you know, most of the time they think that they are drug seeking so they don't give them a lot of pain medication. You're going to see somebody who has a pain of 10 out of 10, but they just give them, you know, something like, uh, you know, mild pain medication. So that's, you know, uh, something that I've noticed, like, for, for people from our culture. And I've, I've seen, you know, like Bolo say, having more people in, in, in the healthcare system going to, help us you know help our people because you can tell well maybe my uncle is in the hospital but i know that because of this this manly thing like no matter how bad is their pain they they wouldn't ask for pain medication it's cultural but like knowing that you know it's like you're gonna approach your patient and then do a better care than you know somebody who doesn't know about that cultural uh, uh, problem that's a really good perspective that we don't always think about um, and it, it reminded me, as you were speaking, of a word that we have in our language, which is muñ. So the best way that I describe muñ is like basically mm -hmm. to endure, to kind of just get through something by, you know, um, kind of taking the shots is how I, or taking the punches is how I think about it. Um, we're oftentimes taught that if we just put our minds to it, if we just muñ, uh, that we'll get through anything. Um, but I think it's really good, the perspective you both have brought in around the uh, the concept or the notion of asking for help and not trying to do things by ourselves 100%. So thank you for that. So in our next segment, we want to talk about um, a couple of things. So we're um, going to be solutions-oriented in terms of how do we not just provide people context around mental health, but how can they be proactive? in battling the, the combat of, of mental health. So what are some practical solutions, uh, tactical things that people can do in the Senegalese or African-American society to, in making the mental health conversations easier? So I love the example that Adam gave um, around asking her parents or her mom around what her story is, but I love the story that you gave us around, you know, helping your, your kids cope with the, the loss of a grandparent what are some of the practical solutions, things that we can do day to day to make the conversation easier? Uh, I think it's important that, you know, like I, I think I, we bring awareness because it's important that people know that having mental illness is the same as having diabetes or high blood pressure. So if you have diabetes, you don't mind talking about it. You don't mind going to, to your doctor. So it's the same as, you know, having mental illness. So as long as that, you know, we, 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 we are aware of it and we talk about it, you know, people are going to be more inclined to, to seek the help that they need. That's important, you know. So and also we have to, you know, stigma as far as it's not just in the, you know, Senegalese community. I think it's in, you know, 
in it's almost everywhere. You know, stigma in mental health has been, you know, I see patient, African-American or even, you know, Caucasian patient, and, you know, they come seeking for help and the family are saying, you need Jesus, you don't need medication. So it's there, it's something that's swept under the rug and it's important that, you know, we talk about it. Doesn't matter, we are black, white, you know, the stigma is still there. Now I see like African-Americans slowly, they are starting to, to bring their, children for help and all that but you know we need more you know because it's you cannot be physically well if you you are not mentally well it's a combination of both so we have to talk about it we have to bring awareness we have to have more healthcare workers in the field and we have to you know be open and then don't be judgmental you know you can listen to somebody without making fun or without you know uh, going and gossip and talk about that person issues stuff yeah um to me like you guys said it's uh raising awareness and being accepting of the situation that's when you're more comfortable to seek for help and support and mental health is defined in many different ways like we said earlier i was uh talking to a group of uh moms with special needs kids i have a special need kids so just having a child with special need can affect your mental health because you're afraid. Um, I mean, if you're Senegalese, you're afraid people are going to judge your child, are going to say, that's a failure. You have a child with special needs. People are going to say, look at how your child is behaving or what they're doing. So a lot of Senegalese people or Africans or some others don't want to show their child, don't want to get out, don't want to um, talk about what's, what's, what's going on with their child because they're afraid to be judged. So what I would say is it's hard, like that's because it's part of the grieving, you're not at a stage where you're accepting what's going on. If you're not there and it's taking long, try to find a therapist or family therapist. It's, it's, it, it, can be, it can be covered by insurance. Both parents can go and get a therapist that's gonna help you get there. Once you get there, you're proud of your child, you're showing off your child and join a support group. You can find people who have similar issues, similar diagnoses that have supportive group that can help each other cope, help each other go through it. Um, that's that's very important. And not judging, um, not judging our community, not judging our people. Let's try to find a way to help them instead of judging. And I would like to add to it, you know, just to remind people that, you know, mental illness is, is a chemical imbalance, you know, of like several neurotransmitters. As we know, we have like our serotonin, you know, we, when somebody is depressed, you know, they mean, it means that they have an imbalance in, in serotonin. When somebody is anxious, there is some issue with the GABA neurotransmitter. And when somebody has issues like psychosis and paranoia also, you know, there's some issues with the dopamine. So when they go seek the help and for example we put them on medication it's just like you are trying to you know that imbalance that they have in their brain you are trying to fill the brain back to not maybe like 200 percent but like at least to 98 percent so when somebody is on medication you know the medication kind of like fill that hole that gap that that's that's there i mean and mainly is due to it may be due to genetic predisposition it may be due to trauma we talk about trauma trauma basically is the base the foundation of like all most of the mental illness so it's important that you know people know that when we 
put them on medication. It's not just because they have some issues that you want to just medicate them. The medication going to give them a somewhat normal like functioning. It's going to kind of fill the holes and then replenish, replenish it and then add more, you know, no chemical. Uh, neurotransmitters to it, you know, combining therapy, like uh, Bolo said, therapy and medication is always the best, you know, so because while you're going through this, you need to have somebody to talk to who will not, you know, judge you, somebody who is not a family member, whose job is just to sit down and then listen to you and give you the solution or just teach you some skills when you are anxious how do you do like some uh, relaxation techniques or deep breathing technique or mindfulness you know so that when you feel overwhelmed you use those skills that you 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 learn from the therapist and then use it when you don't have the therapist and, and just one thing this is bolo that i really really want to uh, focus on i mean want to highlight to our is to stop using that word doff that we use in senegal it's very, very disturbing. It's very uh, uh, condescending to use the word defadof because every mental illness has a name. We have to name it by its name and make it, make it human, make it decent. And like Muna said, it's not something that they did wrong. It's just disease, just like diabetes, just like hypertension. It can be uh, taken care of by medication and therapy. That's that's all what I wanted to add. I don't like that name. I mean that word "doff." And 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 to tell you the truth, I think there are more doff people out there than you know in the mental uh, health field. You know, I work in uh, inpatient psychiatry. You know, some in the middle of the night when the house supervisor used to do their round, and then they would come to the psych unit and say, "Geez, you know, it's like this unit is." quieter is common is well structured more structured than the other units so like you know because they know that they have some need and their need are being taken care of you know so like that term the fadoff or crazy or madman there is no such thing as that it's just like they have some because somebody with any psychosocial stressors can put you in there in this uh, can give you mental illness you know if you lose your job if you are unemployed, if you lose your family members, if you divorce, or if you are even going through like domestic abuse, all that can 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 give you like mental illness, can put you at risk for you know being depressed, can for anxiety, for having panic attack. So all of that, you know. So and anybody among us, anybody can can have it. You can just get up one day and lose a family member. You can get into a car accident and you are not able to do to function the way you used to, you know. So all, those are the psychosocial stressors and, you know, plus like the genetic disposition that put, put us at high risk. So it's important that we take care of our family members that have issues and then help them get better because, you mean, this is not a disease that you're going to be having uh, your whole life. Some of them somewhat like schizophrenia or bipolar, but you know, those people are also maintained on a high level so that they are able to do like everything that you and I are doing. You know, they can go to work, they can raise families, they can do anything. So it's just a, a matter of getting their need met. Thank you both for all of that information. And this is why you, you both were um, invited to this podcast because you both are so knowledgeable on this subject. You, you both have given such great feedback. We appreciate the time 
um, that you've taken to um, share what you what you have shared. And we hope that our listeners have learned a lot today because I sure have and implement these things in the community because for all of us to be at, you know, the ideal state of mental health, it's a community effort. We can't do it um, alone. Stigma needs to be, you know, needs to go away. We need to be more understanding. We need to be more empathetic. So um, we hope that this has influenced our listeners in a positive way. Um, So thank you again. And yeah, that's the end of the episode. So as usual, the conversations always continue um, online on Instagram at Joko Podcast, double underscore, where we'll have our listeners will have the opportunity to share their own um, mental health stories or ways of coping, um, especially during COVID-19. So thank you for listening. 